Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, April the 10th, 2023, uh, Monday morning, bright and early, California, later in the rest of the world or most of the rest of the world. We are beginning this Monday morning with a Monday morning kind of question, a, a, a question that is deeply depressing and complicated. America in the Middle East. Done so many shows on the Middle East. Did one last week with Michael Scott Bauman on uh, his uh, new book, The Shortest History of Israel and Palestine, a, a very short history, but a very tragic one, especially I think American and not just American Western mismanagement of both Israel and Palestine. Um, many other shows did one with the estimable uh, American journalist Robert Draper on the American catastrophe in Iraq. He has a, he had a new book out to start a war. How the Bush administration took America into Iraq. We've done lots of shows on the. Catastrophe in Syria, one with the CNN journalist Cl Clarissa Ward on the humanitarian crisis on all fronts, another with the Washington Post journalist Joby Warwick on the strategic disasters on Syria. He has a new book, or had a new book out, Red Line. Uh, broader issues of the Middle East, we had the Brookings Institute scholar Shadi Hamid on, uh, suggesting in his new book, The Problem of Democracy, that Americans don't even understand the nature of democracy in the Middle East. Um, in terms of a structural approach to the broader question of policy in the Middle East, we did a, a show a couple of years ago, a very successful show with the Lebanese or the Lebanon-based journalist, uh, BBC journalist Kim Khattas, her book, um, Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East is a classic, a bestseller. And it talks <laughs> about the chaos, the problems of the Middle East. But we've never done a book on the broader question of American policy in the Middle East, and that's what we are dealing with today. Um, the book is called Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. And it's by my guest, Stephen Simon, who has two day jobs, one at MIT and one at the Quincy Institute for Responsible uh, Statecraft. And he is talking to us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Grand Delusion. Um, Stephen, I was. It of course brings to mind Grand Illusion, the great French movie. Has American policy in the Middle East since Reagan, when you're really writing your history, has it been almost completely a disaster? Well, it's, it certainly hasn't, uh, you know, produced the results that people thought they would get, um, and it has been a disaster um, off and on. Uh, not so much for the United States, but much more so for the peoples uh, of the region, for the populations of the countries that were at the receiving end of U.S. policy. Um, I'd say really that, you know, it's had a, a couple of a serious um, implications for the United States, uh, which are worth mentioning. Uh, uh, the first, I think, is that before the period my book covers, um, uh, the U.S. was shattered economically, I would say, uh, by the 1973-74 uh, uh, OPEC oil embargo, which was instigated by uh, Saudi Arabia. That led to a 10-year uh, downturn uh, in American economic performance, a sharp rise in inflation uh, at the same time, and the end of... Uh, you know, what, what economists call the long acceleration, the great period of economic growth uh, following World War II, uh, that, that was brought to an end. Um, and, then, and then there was 9-11, which was a deranging um, uh, event in American history and was a product uh, uh, in large measure of the U.S. Uh, involvement uh, in the region. I don't think that there's there can really be much question uh, about that. And that in turn led to an invasion 
uh, of Iraq, also of Afghanistan, although that's not within the scope of the book, and that um, uh, that war in Iraq cost trillions, uh, killed uh, 4,000, over 4,000 Americans, and uh, in, in itself uh, was, a, was a deranging uh, uh, event in American history, only uh, much dragged on, uh, much prolonged. So, uh, you know, the, for the United States, it's, it, hasn't been, it hasn't been really very good. It certainly uh, hasn't been very glorious. Um, your, the, the subtitle of your book is, um, uh, is um, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. You, you begin, uh, as you say, your narrative with uh, the Saudi oil embargo under Carter and then Reagan. Um, what is American ambition in the Middle East? Is it a classic colonial great power ambition? Is it an idealistic one or is it a mishmash, a mix up, a confusion? Yeah, it's really it's it's really a mishmash and, and sorting out uh, what the primary motives are uh, is very difficult you know, in retrospect, uh, because so many different motivations and justifications were voiced from time to time and at the same time, uh, really, for what the U.S. was doing. But what separated uh, the, uh, the historical epoch that, uh, that my book covers from the preceding epoch, essentially, is that um, uh, between World War II and the Reagan administration, the United States had got, you know, pretty much what it needed. Uh, out of the Middle East, that is what it needed in strategic terms um, uh, in the Middle East. And it did so with very little effort, uh, in part because uh, there were friendly regimes on both sides of the, of the Gulf, you know, on the, on the Arab side and the, and the Persian side. Uh, and, and in part because we had uh, essentially a, a weak adversary and friendly regimes on our side, and our friendly regimes are more capable than, than the Soviets' uh, friendly regimes. Would it be region. fair oh. to say, um, Stephen, that, um, that for many years after Suez, the U.S. bathed in a, in a kind of honeymoon with the Middle East, given that they weren't France and they weren't the United Kingdom? Well, they certainly, uh, the United States wasn't burdened by the uh, resentments uh, and, and anger that uh, the British and French occupations over the period of a century had. Um, I mean, they, had, don't have, they didn't have the skeletons of Sykes-Picot, they didn't have Suez, they didn't have Palestine, they didn't have any of the things that, that screwed up the region for a hundred years uh, under British and French occupation. No, it, it, it didn't. And, and the United States was able to really accomplish its goals uh, on the back of uh, French and but principally British uh, imperialism in the region. And, you know, the, it, when that came to an end in the late 1960s, uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, who was presiding over a war in Vietnam that had greatly overextended the United States in East Asia, was was furious with his British counterpart uh, for uh, that British government's decision to remove the British military from the Persian Gulf because it meant that the burden was going to be on the United States. And Johnson, uh, you know, didn't want didn't to bear that burden. And, and for good reason. It, it doesn't as... Well, there was no choice. All right. Uh, it, it, it didn't. Perhaps it doesn't come naturally for America to be so intimately involved in a in a region of the world so geographically and culturally and religiously and politically foreign to itself. Is is that fair, or is that an a, an easy an, an easy excuse for how they've screwed up their involvement in the region? You know, I think it's it's one excuse. <laughs> you know, um, uh, among many. I mean, look, the United States uh, all along as almost everybody knows, I think, at this point, uh, had two objectives in the Middle East. The one was to secure a steady flow of oil uh, from, the, from the Arab side of the Gulf. And the other was to secure, um, at least initially, the survival of uh, the Israeli state, which was established in 1948 in the wake of the Holocaust. 
um, which weighed on everyone's conscience. I mean, in the United States and Britain, it didn't weigh on consciences so heavily that either country was willing to take in um, the survivors of the Holocaust. Um, uh, that was a bridge too far. Uh, right. for well, that's both. that's another story. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Stephen, I, I said I was going to call you Scott. <laughs> you and I almost did. I didn't, but I almost did. But now, um, now it's out there. Stephen, um, you've talked about the Saudi oil embargo. You've talked implicitly about Carter and Reagan. You haven't mentioned um, 79 and the what Khatas calls the unraveling of the modern Middle East, of course, the Iranian revolution. How central is that in terms of, of the grand delusion that you write about in your book? Is that the, the, the gorilla that lies behind all the various disasters of one kind or another of the United States in the region? Yeah, well, to be sure. Um, I mean, Kim is, is right, I think, in her, in her bottom line. Uh, the it was the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran that triggered the 40-year trajectory of intensive uh, involvement by the United States in the Middle East. And, uh, because, uh, as we were saying before, there was no need for intensive uh, involvement prior uh, to 1979. But the thing is that, that, that the 1979 revolution you know, followed a period in which there was something of a vacuum. Of, of great power presence uh, in the Middle East. And that the U.S. interests were supposed to have been underpinned, uh, you know, in that period by Saudi Arabia on the one hand and the uh, Shah of Iran on the other. With the revolution that deposed the Shah, the pins were kicked out from underneath U.S. policy, the whole U.S. approach to the Middle East. And suddenly uh, the Middle East was perceived as... Uh, as an arena for U.S. intervention, as an essential arena for U.S. intervention. And, but it, there was never seemingly a coherent program uh, regulating that inter intervention. And, and, and need I say more than the fact that the intervention, when it took off, took off in Lebanon, uh, which was far from central uh, to the interests of the United States at that point. Yet Reagan when he uh, explained to the American people uh, the fact that the United States had intervened with, uh, with a, an awful cost um, uh, in Lebanon, uh, he, he said that it was important for freedom and liberty throughout the world. He said it was, we, the United States was defending a global interest. And the disjunction, the, the delusion, if you will, of uh, events in Lebanon into which the United States had, had waded um, uh, at that time under Reagan was, was somehow pivotal uh, to world freedom is on its face. <laughs> Not very convincing. Um, you know, perhaps... Just remind, even, but, Stephen, remind our viewers and listeners of what the Middle East, the Arab Middle East, looked like um, in, when, when Reagan came to power. Many, of, many, many people, I'm sure, will have forgotten about the existence of the Ba'athist regimes, what what was its political makeup? What did Reagan face? I mean, leaving aside Lebanon, which has always been Lebanon, confusing, frustrating, but 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 uh, Syria and Iraq, what were they like? Well, I think um, you know the the answer to your to your very good question is Cold War is the Cold War. Uh, the Reagan administration um, uh, spanned the last decade of the Cold War. And in the Cold War, the, the Soviets and the United States had essentially split up the Middle East between them, uh, with the United States having as its uh, friends and security partners uh, in the region, uh, Israel on the one hand, and the conservative Gulf monarchies uh, on the other, uh, as well as Egypt. So that, those countries were arrayed on, on the one side. On the other side, uh, there was uh, the Soviet Union, essentially, and Syria, and, uh, and, and, and half of Yemen. So that's, that's what the region looked like. And, and U.S. policy in the region had been, 
governed on the one hand by a concern for their survival of, of Israel and the safety of Israel, but um, on this flow of oil from the Gulf. Now, the, at that point, the Soviet Union was not in a position to threaten the flow of oil uh, from the Gulf. And, uh, you know, the period when that fear had some justification back in the 1950s was long, was long gone. And the Soviets had their own, not Middle Eastern problem, but near Middle Eastern problem with their invasion of Afghanistan and, of course, the various kinds of crises of, of, of late Soviet times. Did it work, in a sense, Stephen, this weird balance of power between the pro-Soviet but not dangerously pro-Soviet Ba'athist regimes in, in Syria and Iraq and the, uh, the American sphere of influence, um, Israel, Saudi, the Gulf, Egypt, which is also a story in itself, I guess. Well, once Egypt was split off uh, you know, from the Arab bloc in the 1970s by you know, a combination of um, you know, Kissinger's uh, diplomacy and then uh, Jimmy Carter's perseverance, um, uh, once Egypt had been split off, then Syria was essentially isolated because Syria was not capable of waging war against the United States on its own. It always had to do so in conjunction with Egypt. And once the Egyptians were not combatants anymore, once they were out of the picture and especially had signed a peace agreement uh, with, uh, with Israel, you know, the Syrians were just left, um, uh, you know, spinning in the breeze. Uh, without they, I, I mean, that was convenient for them. They, they weren't particularly interested in fighting a war either. They just wanted to sound as if they wanted to fight once. Uh, Stephen, you... You bring up Reagan and the disaster in Lebanon. I take your point, but did it really matter? I mean, Reagan had many successes. Lebanon at most now is a footnote to his administration. Did it have a long-term impact on the region? Um, in terms of you beginning your history, your, your history of the, the grand illusion of American ambition in the Middle East with Reagan, what else, apart from Lebanon, uh, makes his um, presidency so important? Reagan's administration uh, was, when I got into it deeply, and I was, I was working in government in the Reagan administration. Yeah, um, you're a guy who's been, you're like so many of these DC fancy academic types. You're in and out of government, so you know both sides of the, this world. Yeah, well, at least a, a bit of both. And, you know, the thing about the Reagan administration that was so fascinating to me when I got back into it, um, you know, academically, was its posture toward Iran. Now, the United States uh, has never been able to get its act together um, on uh, how best to deal with the post-revolutionary uh, government uh, in Iran. And relations, as we all know, have been very hostile, you know, over the years. There have been some ups and downs, but on the whole, it's been pretty negative. Um, Reagan, who has the reputation of being the tough guy, um, was from the very outset of his administration interested in reestablishing a U.S.-Iranian relationship, even though the government in Iran was a, a radical Islamist government that was causing a lot of problems uh, for the United States and American allies on the Arab side of the Gulf. Because Reagan, uh, and at least parts of administration, uh, calculated that, you know, at the end of the day, the Iranians have the population, uh, the educational system, the technological savvy, the uh, the history uh, of uh, a history of independence, uh, really, from uh, outside power control, that in, in essence, at the end of the day, you know, the Iranians were still going to be the best ally for the United States in the region. That's what that's what the Reagan administration concluded. And I remember that Reagan's administration was made possible, in a sense, by the collusion of the Reagan campaign with the Iranians because, you know, they colluded to um, uh, delay the release of American hostages uh, from Iran until uh, uh, the election, until after the election. In so, uh, so, so, so Reagan, in this sense, 
and, and correct me, please, uh, Stephen, if I'm wrong, Reagan had good political instincts. He he wasn't going to be blinkered by this upset, this this anti-Iranian obsession in America because of the the hostage crisis. He understood geopolitics, or at least the geopolitics of the region. That it was in everyone's interest for America and Iran to be on reasonably friendly terms. Quite so. And in the mid 1980s, in 1985, the CIA produced a really fascinating study which um, underpinned in an analytical um, way uh, the instincts of, of the Reagan administration at that time. Now, the, Reagan wound up pursuing, uh, you know, this, this policy instinct uh, through a secret program uh, to arm Iran in its war with Iraq when the United States was publicly supporting Iraq. Um, and that uh, was disclosed at a certain point and blew up in the administration's face and nearly wrecked uh, Reagan's second term. So um, as, as usual in the Reagan administration, except, in so, except outside of the arms control domain, um, the, the administration just kind of screwed it up. Now, um, but but that but came out looking good. Let's move on to the elder Bush and his so-called first war in Iraq. Um, how, in your view, is this still the rise of American ambition in the Middle East, or were we already on the fall? It's it's still the rise, um, you know, in this sort of graphic imagining of of the trajectory. It's still on the rise. Because when uh, Saddam Hussein, the dictator in, in Iraq, invaded Kuwait in 1990 because he, he felt that the Kuwaitis owed him their oil. for various Where reasons. are you, by the way, Stephen, on the whole April Glasser thing? I mean, did, was that invasion itself a screw up of American diplomacy or is that a mistake? Well, um, I think that there was a serious error preceding the invasion in the failure of the Bush administration to signal clearly to Saddam that aggression was going to be countered uh, and he would be punished for it. But there was this countervailing in interest in the United States at that time, which was primarily economic and domestic political because you had the farm states in the Middle East, in, in the Middle West, uh, championed by Bob Dole, Senator Dole, um, uh, and and they wanted the United States to extend agricultural commodity credits, in other words, loans for the uh, you know procurement of grain by Saddam's Iraq, which badly needed it. And you know every administration, uh, you know, is political, and they need to secure votes and the support of key states in the in the Middle West. So the idea was to keep seeking, um, you know, economic openings and uh, with Iraq and uh, and retain the ability to sell grain and so forth. Despite uh, you know Saddam's policies in the region, and this sent mixed signals uh, to Saddam. See, so Stephen, I don't. We we of course have the rise of what. People call now this neocon position, the Wolfowitz idea of America being able to establish democracy in the Middle East through some domino effect. When did this begin? When did American ideologists of democracy begin to cast greedy eyes on the Middle East and think that they could um, reinvent the region uh, in the image of America itself? Well, this is this is, you already see bits of this in the Reagan administration, but it emerged full blown in the first Bush administration, which, you know, articulated this idea of a new world order. And uh, in this new world order, uh, the good guys uh, would be democracies. And um, everybody would play by the rules and the rules would be that. Uh, you know, strong states don't um, uh, pick on, on on the little states, and um, and and there'll be freedom, uh, not just uh, in terms of uh, domestic politics, you know, within these countries, but but freedom in a geopolitical sense. The countries wouldn't have to fear aggression. This was a huge, huge thing, 
and and a serious um, and and uh, at, at, you know at the end of 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 the era. Um, uh, well, you know, would it be fair to I, say? Yeah. It always occurred to me, Stephen, that maybe it's a pipe dream, maybe it isn't. But the time to have implemented it, to have to have bet the house on it, was in the first war, and American forces should have just deposed, uh, got rid of Saddam and, and, and advanced to Baghdad. Is there an argument for that, that there was an opportunity for America to remake the Middle East in its own image, uh, but that would have happened in the late, uh, in the early 90s rather than after 9-11? You know, it's a counterfactual. You, you, there's no way... No, to I, I understand, but... But, but uh, look... The, the Bush administration thought that the war that they fought was going to result in the end of the Saddam regime. Okay, they thought that the, the war with its limited aims would have a ripple effect domestically uh, in Iraq, uh, encourage um, Saddam's uh, enemies in the military and, and perhaps elsewhere, and and Saddam would be overthrown, and then and then you'd be on your way to some you know utopia. And they were wrong again. Uh, let's move on because we we've got a lot a lot more of your your journey to to, to go before we finish. Um, Clinton doesn't come up very much. He was in power for eight years. Was it a kind of hiatus in American policy in the Middle East between the two Bushes? between the first Gulf War and uh, 9-11? Yes and no. Um, you know, on Iraq, which was the most important Middle East issue uh, facing, uh, facing the United States and the Clinton administration, uh, the, uh, the Clinton administration went on automatic pilot, I guess. Um, uh, the... Uh, the management of the Iraq problem devolved to lower level officials uh, who were essentially unsupervised. And uh, they uh, did a couple of things. One was come up with this notion of dual containment, what they call dual containment, which is the United States is so powerful that it can contain both Iranian and Iraqi power. Now, this was a policy departure because prior to that, the idea had always been, well, Iraq and Iran are natural enemies. Let them balance against each other. And in that way, uh, you know, they'll both be weaker than they would be otherwise. They'd be preoccupied with each other. And therefore, the burden on the United States, the security burden on the United States would actually be very limited and quite manageable. Well, the Clinton administration <laughs> threw that, uh, you know, threw that uh, out the window uh, and said, well, never mind, uh, you know, about these two states balancing against each other. We're going to be the balancer against both. But there was them. a sur surreal quality in the sense that there no longer was a Soviet Union. The Russians were preoccupied with their own domestic problems. So America, at this point under Clinton, had the region pretty much to itself, didn't it? Uh, yes, yes, they did. And um, in, instead of uh, really embracing a kind of creative approach uh, to the region, all it did was continue to hammer Iraq in the search of WMD, weapons of mass destruction, that were not there. Right. And, I, and I guess, it's, again, it's easy to see everything now, but back in the 90s, it was just assumed that the situation would continue. No one imagined Putin, no one imagined Syria. So let's Move on, Stephen, to 9-11. Now, we can blame many things on America, but not 9-11, can we? Or, or have, what, what's your place in the narrative in Grand Delusion of 9-11? Was it just a, a lightning bolt, an act of God, or is this part of the rise and fall of American ambition in the Middle East? I just... Um, I. I that's hugely important, and I want to turn to that, which is another 30 seconds on Clinton. Of course, please. You can take more. You can have a minute. A minute? Okay, more than enough. I'm very generous. It's a Monday morning, Stephen. So 
you know, the Clinton administration in, in, in going on automatic pilot uh, on Iraq and hammering Iraq on, on WMD wound up punishing the Iraqi people very heavily. And because of the sanctions that the United States uh, imposed through the UN uh, on Iraq, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died who otherwise would not mm. have died. Okay. That's a very serious thing. And the administration knew that this was going on. And when Madeleine Albright was challenged on this, uh, she, uh, you know, she uttered her, uh, you know, infamous words that, well, yes, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, Iraqis and Iraqi children were killed, but it was worth it because uh, it was all necessary uh, to deal with the threat of Iraqi WMD, which, by the way, happened not to exist. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, this was a, a terrible, punitive blow to the population of, uh, you know, <laughs> an Arab state. I mean, you know, and these people had nothing to do with it. They had, they had no control it's over it. It's a shameful chapter. Meanwhile, and this is probably a subject for another conversation. I mean, the Israel problem continued to fester. So this wasn't existing in isolation. Well, I, what, what I was going to add was that in, in, in the meantime, the Clinton administration in the second term focused really heavily on a peace process with Israel and, and the Palestinians that was fated to go nowhere. And, you know, many experts saw, you know, the futility of this diplomatic effort, which did in fact fail, but it was a diplomatic effort that distracted the administration from more important uh, regional issues. Okay. That's where were topic. you, by the way, I know you've been involved in some of these administrations. Where were you in the Clinton years? Were you in or out, in or out of government? I was, I was in, I was at the white house, um, for, uh, six of the eight years of the Clinton administration. So this must be, this critique must be particularly painful for you. Is it a kind of self-critique too? Do you have a degree of responsibility, even if you weren't senior at that point? Yeah, of course. And I, and I address this, um, you know, in the, in the book, at the outset of the book. I mean, for me, uh, writing of this book was, uh, it was scourging. Uh, yeah. It was, it was really hard to do. And particularly yeah. in terms of the, the impact on the Iraqi people of, of Clinton's policy. So let's move on. And I asked earlier about 9-11, whether this was, so to speak, an act of God, uh, act of God a bolt of lightning, or, or can Al-Qaeda and the attack of 9-11, can that be knitted into the broader narrative of your rise and fall of American ambition in the Middle East? You know, not enough is known about the origins of 9-11 on the, on the Al-Qaeda side of the story. And, you know, one of the problems of never putting people on trial is that you never get the story. Yeah, you just kill them, right? <laughs> well, you kill them or you, or you button them up in Guantanamo. Yeah. I mean, know, I'm laughing, but I'm not really laughing. So, so what um, would, if, if there was one thing you would like to know, you know as much about this, as Stephen, as anyone, what don't we know about Al-Qaeda that we, we would need to know for you to answer that question? Why did the United States um, become the target of choice for Al-Qaeda? Um, and I, it's, there's good speculation on this. Um, but, you know, we haven't really, you know, heard about it uh, from the people who were intimately uh, involved in targeting the United States and planning the attack. So, um, you know, that's, that's something I'd really like to know. Now, bin Laden did say himself that, uh, you know, the United States sort of hove into view uh, as a target because uh, in the first Gulf War, uh, bin Laden, you know, had said uh, to the rulers of, of Saudi Arabia that um, Arabs should be the ones protecting Saudi Arabia against Saddam's aggression, not uh, a massive Christian army. And he felt that uh, the, the invitation um, uh, by, the, by the Saudi royals to the United States to deploy an enormous army, a half a million 
uh, soldiers to the sacred soil of Arabia was, it was impious. It was, it, it, it was just morally wrong. And it had upset the, the, the moral order of the universe, uh, you know, from, from bin Laden's, you know, perspective. And the whole idea that the Saudi royals who'd accumulated these great riches from oil were unable at the end of the day to stage its own defense against Saddam was, uh, that was pretty mind boggling, you know, for bin Laden. And since the United States had been the army that in his view occupied Saudi Arabia for the purposes of fighting Iraq, uh, the United States became the target. And then, you know, perversely perhaps, you know, the, the Al-Qaeda um, uh, ideologues and, and, and spokespeople looked at the damage being inflicted by the United States, the continuing damage inflicted by the United States on Iraqis and on Palestinians and so forth, directly or indirectly, and said, well, you know, it's, it's really, you know, the United States at the root of this. And not only that, but the Arab regimes who claim to be Muslim <coughs> regimes, they're... They're, they're illegitimate. They don't really reflect Muslim interests. They're not Islamic, you know, per se. And, and the fact is, they wouldn't be in power if it weren't for the support of the United States. So bin Laden said, well, you know something? Um, you know, we've been busy attacking what he called the near enemy, so the regimes in the region. He said, let's attack the far enemy. Let's go after the country that's supporting all these evil uh, pseudo-Muslim uh, uh, regimes in, in the region. So that's, that's sort of how um, I think that's the best explanation, I think, for, uh, for uh, uh, al-Qaeda targeting the United States. You had an interesting piece in Foreign Policy, you wrote about Afghanistan was a Ponzi scheme sold to the American public. In an odd way, what 9-11 did was make Afghanistan, part of the Middle East, at least in, 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 in the American view, we've done lots of shows on the catastrophe in, in Afghanistan, one with Elliot Ackerman, the fifth act, America's uh -huh. end in Afghanistan, yeah. which is a particularly uh, aggressive critique of American policy uh, in Afghanistan. How catastrophic a war was that? And, and, and should ultimately in, in post 9-11, in the post 9-11 world, um, was American ambition in the Middle East mixed up with American ambition or lack of ambition in Afghanistan? Well, uh, you know, the <coughs> pardon me, the response to 9-11, uh, the war on terror, uh, was, you know, was directed, uh, you know, in a lot of ways that don't seem really related very much um, uh, to the cause of the attacks or the need to suppress um, those who uh, carried out the attacks, the group that carried out the attacks. Um, and, and the gap between, you know, policy and ideology on the one side and the realities on the ground on the other are so wide, it, it, it's difficult to comprehend um, because the, in, in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda was a small presence that had been given large running room uh, by the Taliban. But when the United States went in in the you know, fall of, uh, of, of 2001 uh, to bump off uh, Al-Qaeda, they, they in, a, in a sense, they blew it, you know, because the, the military operation failed to trap Al-Qaeda in the Tora Bora Mountains. So, you know, militarily, it wasn't that, it wasn't that great. But the point is that, you know, once the United States had carried out that, that operation, all that was needed in Afghanistan to keep al-Qaeda from reestablishing its presence was a small, you know, American presence that would simply target al-Qaeda, period. Yeah, uh, instead, that's one piece of the tragedy. The, the, the common understanding of the American invasion of Iraq after 9-11 was that Bush was taking revenge because of Hussein, uh, Saddam Hussein's um, 
uh, hostility to his uh, to Bush's father. Is there a personal element here in terms of this grand illusion, or does it fit a, a broader narrative, or is it a mix of the two in terms of this catastrophic American invasion of Iraq, as as you've suggested before, also based on lies or false information? Well, they, uh, you know, the the personal dimension uh, is 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 generally traced to this plot that Saddam had hatched um, to have uh, George H.W. Bush assassinated. Uh, that plot never came to fruition, um, as, as we know, uh, but, but it's, some people say that George W. Bush was determined to um, uh, retaliate uh, for what that. What do you think, Stephen? Some people, uh, most people don't know you done a huge amount of research. You've been in and out of government. Is there some truth to that? Uh, uh, there might be, but I don't think it's terribly important because uh, with in the run-up to the war and then in the wake of the war, the, the rationales that were put forward by the, by the administration were, were numberless. And it's really difficult to figure out what the core objective of the war actually was. It's, it, it's, they threw everything against the wall just to see what would stick. And no doubt, um, you know, some of these justifications were strongly held by some members of the administration, less so by others who were more concerned about yet other uh, justifications. But you could do a big list. I mean, um, and, and it's worth pointing out, by the way, before I, I go into the list, which will just take 10 seconds. Before 9-11, the United States under, under George W. Bush essentially was ignoring the Middle East. They didn't have um, a, a real preoccupation with it. During the campaign, uh, the, the person who became uh, national security advisor uh, in Bush's first term, uh, Condoleezza Rice, you know, wrote in Foreign Affairs on behalf of the of the Bush campaign that you know the Middle East just wasn't that important, and the Middle East. And she was a, a Soviet expert. Um, she was a Soviet expert, and she was concerned to rebuild key alliances that the incoming Republicans thought that Clinton had uh, disregarded. So they wanted to rebuild NATO and they want not that it really needed rebuilding. But anyway, that was their claim. And they thought that the United States had to focus on the big players, namely Russia and China. And, and the Middle East didn't figure into this. So mm. it was only really 9-11 that forced, it, forced everything back on, on, on the stage. Yes. So when you think of the major players in the the second Bush administration, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, Bush himself, who is most responsible for this catastrophic war? Bush, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, why, is... Why, why is he not in, uh, the, the, if this is the right word, the pantheon of disgrace for this? <laughs> now he's, uh, maybe it's simply because Donald Trump makes everyone look good. But, but George Bush now has appeared, as, as, has, has been rebranded as this cuddly character, nice man. But this was a catastrophic war in every sense of money, of, of, of honor, of American uh, power in the world. Yeah, well, um, uh, what, <laughs> what can I say? Americans like George W. Bush. Uh, they just like him and they give him, um, uh, they give him a lot of room. <laughs> I mean, I guess 9-11 provides some cover, but that's no excuse. So let's move on. We, we've already gone a little bit over time, but this is fascinating, Stephen. Let's move to Obama. Obama usually escapes most criticism, but when we did the show with uh, Clarissa Ward, for example, she was enormously critical of of, of Obama's foreign policy people on, on Syria, Joby Warwick as well. How uh, bound up in the, the fall of American ambition in the Middle East is the Obama administration, particularly when it comes to Syria? 
The first, I would say the first half of Obama's first term uh, was the, the U.S. Middle East policy was predicated on the same instincts as drove the New World Order, um, uh, Clinton's version of it, um, uh, George W. Bush's freedom agenda, uh, and and because of the Arab Spring that erupted. Uh, yeah, it's in, what we in Silicon Valley, uh, Stephen, call happy talk. Well, <laughs> there was a lot of happy talk. The, the, the Obama administration was very concerned to support these, uh, you know, new post-revolutionary governments, especially in Tunisia and Egypt. But the only way you could really support them was with money, because that's what they really needed. And the administration uh, went to Congress and asked for the money. And, you know, Congress just said, well, that's not what, where we want to put taxpayer dollars. So um, if the United States had essentially um, uh, very little to work with for the purposes of, uh, you know, economic assistance to give these new governments a chance to get sort of a leg up and gain some legitimacy and, and uh, enhance the reputation of democracy as a form of government that can deliver. So... Um, uh, you know, that didn't work out very well. And then, um, you know, the, the United States invaded, along with NATO, Libya, um, uh, in an attempt to give a military leg up uh, to revolutionaries fighting a tyrannical regime in this context of the Arab Spring. Well, uh, that, as, uh, as Obama later said, was a shit show. It, didn't, it really didn't work out very well. And, and uh, you know, the United States and NATO just got very lucky uh, when um, uh, Gaddafi, the Libyan ruler, was, uh, was found hiding in a drain ditch uh, and killed because otherwise, uh, you know, NATO countries uh, were beginning to lose interest in this war. Uh, and Stephen, can we just... Um... The problem of democracy, Shadi Hamid, you're probably familiar with the book. I found an interesting argument. He said America simply misunderstood the nature of democracy in the Middle East, particularly in Egypt, and should have accepted that the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt was a legitimate government, a legitimate party, a legitimate way of, of, of thinking about democracy in the Middle East. Do you agree with him that, that the Americans made a fundamental mis, uh, misjudgment um, in not embracing the Muslim Brotherhood, the revolutionary Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt. Yeah, I just think he's wrong. I mean, I, I, he's wrong not in, in, not in interpretive terms, but just uh, as to the facts of the matter, because the record is clear. The Obama administration embraced the Muslim, government, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt. Yeah, I, I, to be fair, I, I'm probably not being fair to him. I, I'm, I'm talking more broadly about American policy in Egypt and that if there was to be a, a place where America could rebuild its ambition in the Middle East, it would have been Egypt, and they failed to do it for one reason or another. Well, but the failure, uh, you know, had a, lot of, uh, had a lot of parents here. Uh, you know, the one uh, which I mentioned was that the United States didn't have the resources to help Egypt uh, or Tunisia. They just, you know, the money wasn't the money wasn't there. Uh, the government doesn't print money for this purpose. It depends on Congress and Congress wasn't interested. Uh, Congress wasn't interested in anything Obama was trying to do. And, uh, you know, this was this was at the top of the list. All the money had been wasted in, in Iraq um, and then Syria. How disgraceful a chapter is Syria. I mean, obviously, it's a mostly a Russian war and an Assad war. I mean, the terrible, uh, the terrible record on human rights, you can't blame the Americans for that. But is this a disgraceful episode in American foreign policy in the Middle East, Stephen? I don't think so. Um, and I'll, let me explain why. Um, uh, the first is that the United States did put a lot of money uh, into the uh, opposition in Syria and did a lot uh, preceding the civil war to give the um, what what was called the moderate opposition in Syria uh, a chance uh, in the battle for the future of Syria. And then, uh, you know, by 
2013, the U.S., and this is something that's been largely unacknowledged, in part because a lot of it, uh, you know, was withheld, information was withheld by the government, but it's been extensively reported on in the Wall Street Journal and, 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 and other major broadsheets. The United States established the biggest um, arm and train operation uh, for an opposition force than it had ever done anywhere at the cost of billions of dollars until it was shut down uh, under, under Trump. And, you know, this was, this was a major intervention. And to disregard it uh, is, um, uh, is, is, is a little strange, um, you know, because it was hugely important. Now, as it happens, and as is often the case when the U.S. does this, it backs the wrong horse. And in this case, the right horse was a horse that the United States couldn't back and wouldn't ride. And that was the jihadist opposition uh, to, uh, uh, to the Assad regime. And they were more powerful, they were more committed, they were better organized, um, and, uh, and they had a flow of foreign fighters that was very valuable to them. And they... Um, they beat the pants off the, uh, uh, off the segment of the opposition that the United States was supporting very lavishly. And, and uh, in a kind of awful way, uh, also inherited uh, much of the weapons and so forth um, that mm. the United States had conferred on the moderate opposition. So um, the United States, I think, really tried extremely hard uh, to weaken Assad to the point where it was thought he would come to the table and at least negotiate. And they failed, but, of course. Um, yeah. let's, let's fast forward. There's so much here, and everyone, of course, needs to read your new book. It's a very, very important book, um, Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East, a tragic book, uh, or tr about a tragic period. Um, you're very active now uh, in giving advice to the current American administration, the Biden administration. Uh, you've written about what Blinken should do, visiting Israel and drone attacks on Iran. Uh, you've written about uh, supporting American withdrawals from Iraq. Let's end, um, Stephen. I know it's a complicated story and an easy question to ask, hard one to answer. What should Biden be doing? And what should Blinken be doing in the Middle East to begin to address these various catastrophes in Iraq, in Iran, uh, even Israel, I mean, which probably deserves another show. Um, I guess end with two or three concrete ways. Nothing can solve it overnight, of course, but concrete ways that America can reestablish its credibility as a great power in the region. Um, and perhaps garner a little bit more respect than it has done over the last 50 years? Well, you know, if, if the, uh, you know, very aggressive uh, U.S. posture uh, in the Middle East over this period hasn't earned it a lot of respect, then, um, you know, I don't expect uh, it will <coughs> earn respect, uh, you know, down the road. I think U.S. involvement has to reflect U.S. interest. You know, it's as simple and as what that. What are those? Though? What are the? Are you? How would you respond to certainly some of the isolationists now in the Republican Party? Say it's none of our business. Let's just leave. Um, yeah. So uh, the U.S. I think has a broad interest in <coughs> regional stability because instability can create circumstances that will trigger mostly for political reasons back in the United States, uh, re-intervention, another wave of intervention. And I think that's, that's best not done. So uh, things that the United States can do to enhance stability are worth doing. Now, uh, in Iraq, the United States continues to support the ability of the Iraqi, the, the Iraqi military to deal with the residual ISIS threat that's very important. 
And they're also doing this uh, in Syria, mostly to ensure stability in Iraq, because ISIS, you know, came out of Syria and, and it would come out of Syria again, presumably. So that's one thing. Another thing the United States is doing is shifting the, the bulk of its programs and its, uh, its diplomatic efforts uh, in, in Iraq to enhancing Iraq's economic future. That's really important, creating jobs, diminishing uh, corruption, uh, increasing interregional trade, doing all these things that will make life better for Iraqis after decades of just terrible conflict and, and misery, and make life better for them and, uh, and have a kind of a stable state right there in the Middle East. So that's, that's one thing it can do. The second thing, and it's doing it, the, the second thing the United States could do is try to wreckage, is try to, to, to repair the wreckage um, on U.S.-Iranian relations uh, created by uh, Donald Trump, who ripped up a working nuclear agreement that the United States and European powers and China um, had with Iran. It was a working agreement. It was really good, you know, and it, lasted, it, was, it was supposed to last for 15 years. But Trump tore it up. Uh, and now, well you know, the, the Biden administration is trying to repair the damage. Okay, the United States influence in Saudi Arabia uh, and the United Arab Emirates, uh, two traditional allies, um, uh, is diminishing because those countries have matured and they've got global interests and they're trying to balance. Well, they've matured, but they're also, you know, in their own way, certainly the Saudi state, again, enormously controversial. We did a show few months ago with someone from the Retrieve Human Rights Group in the UK suggesting that Mohammed bin Salman's kingdom is one of executions. They have a worse public execution rate than the Iranians. They don't even tell the families of the people they're executing. Should there be a moral dimension of American relations with the Gulf states in particular? You know, that's a political question. And, you know, and I'm not an ethicist. You are an ethicist. You got an MA in religious studies. You seem to me a deeply (laughs) ethical man. You you must have an opinion on this, Stephen. You can't dodge these hard questions. That was mostly involved studying Hebrew and Greek. The, um, (laughs) not ethics so much, but um, the U.S. preoccupation with the eternal politics of, of other states is 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 a bridge too far for the United States. Now, in, even, if, even if the U.S. is concerned about the rate of executions uh, in Saudi Arabia, which has been very, very high for decades, by the way, I don't know why Mohammed bin Salman, you know, gets, uh, you know, gets so much attention for it, because under, you know, Fahad or Faisal or any of those past, you know, royal houses, uh, the execution rates have been extremely, extremely high. So, um, you know, if the United States was really in a position to do something about this, well, then, you know, uh, great. Put it, in, put it in your foreign policy agenda and impose your moral stance uh, on this other country. But if the, if the other country is in a position to blow you off, uh, which is the case um, uh, uh, with Saudi Arabia um, uh, in particular, well, then they're just going to do it. So I mean, maybe this is what you mean by a, a pragmatic superpower, one of the titles of your book. Let's end with an easy question. Um, you, you had another book, The Sixth Crisis, Iran, Israel, America, and the Rumors of War. Is You talked about a bridge too far when it came to morality, but Israel isn't a bridge too far. It's America's problem, for better or worse. What can be done there, finally? What should Blinken be doing in his talks with the Netanyahu government. Is there any way forward on that? Or is that something that will continue to fester and ultimately will result in the eruption of some catastrophic war? (coughs) It will continue to fester, whether it results in a catastrophic war, um, uh, you know, is, is, is impossible to say. I think the administration is trying to protect its domestic equities, um, you know, back home because there's a strong constituency in the United States 
uh, for a strong U.S.-Israeli relationship, uh, regardless of Israeli policies or the Israeli leadership. So, um, you know, it's incumbent upon Biden as a political player to pay attention to that constituency. Um, you know, internationally, uh, you know, there's the question of how the United States could really coerce um, uh, Israel into changing its policies. And I don't think that there's a way the United States can do that. Um, I don't think that, that the United States has the leverage on Israel it would need um, uh, to force Israeli changes. And I think in this regard, it's really important to bear in mind that, that what we're seeing um, with Israel in terms of its own internal politics uh, and its relations with Palestinians, they, this has been brewing for a really long time. This is, this is not new. And what we're seeing is uh, the, the flowering, if I can put it that way, of trends in Israeli society and politics that have been developing, you know, for decades. And, and at this point, it, you know, the United States can't change the direction of Israel's development as a nation and as a state. The United States can't do that. Um, so uh, the United States shouldn't be expected to do it. Uh, and as long as the political system in the United States uh, is structured such that support for Israel uh, is, is going to be strong, sort of no matter what uh, is going on in Israel, then, um, uh, then I think all we can really do is, is watch and opine and moralize and all that. In the meantime, Biden and, and, and Tony Blinken are doing what it is they can do, which is continually to remind Netanyahu that he said he was going to preside and really run this very right-wing administration and keep it under control. And uh, they need to keep reminding him of that. And the more they remind him of that and the more loudly they remind him of that, the more he's able to turn to his right-wing partners and say, hey, look, we got to tone this down because the Americans are really on my back and they're not giving me a choice here. So in essence, U.S. pressure is meant mostly to provide Netanyahu with an excuse to use for ratcheting the more radical elements in his government back. And that's not unimportant, but I don't think it's going to be a game changer.